Hey, it's Anna Maria Tremonti, and I'm excited to tell you about my new podcast. It's called More, and I'll be talking to people you may think you already know until you hear them here. We've got a little more time to explore and to probe and even to play a little. So get ready for the likes of David Suzuki, Catherine O'Hara, Margaret Atwood, and many others. You can find more with Anna Maria Tremonti wherever you get your favorite podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. In December, an arrest was made that put Canada into the middle of a trade war between the United States and China. Ms. Mung, what do you have to say to the charges? I'm Stephen Quinn. Sanctioned is the complicated story of how and why Huawei CFO Meng Wanzhou was arrested. How will this impact our lives and technology? Sanctioned. Subscribe at cbc.ca slash sanctioned or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman. This is White Coat Black Art, the show about medicine from all sides of the gurney. Doctors often see themselves as socially progressive, and yet evidence shows that medicine still has a disturbingly big problem with sexism. A recent article in HealthyDebate.ca noted that women MDs make less money than their male counterparts and are underrepresented in positions of leadership. And if you keep an eye on issues in modern medicine as we do, Me Too, Equal Pay, and Abortion, to name three, well, the battle for gender equity in medicine in Canada is far from over. To get a sense of the long view, look to one of the women who was there when it was just getting started, Dr. May Cohen. She had no difficulty speaking to power, and she was able to speak about the issues that concerned us with passion and commitment and energy. People listened to her in a way that some of the younger women didn't feel listened to. That's Dr. Barbara Lent, a family physician at the University of Western Ontario in a clip from a new film called The Gender Lady, the fabulous Dr. May Cohen. Dr. Cohen's story spans decades of fundamental change in medicine and our society. Turns out she was one of the flames that started the fire. And now seems like the perfect time to get Cohen's perspective on the past and what lies ahead. This was someone I was privileged to meet. How, where have you collected all these from? Where did I collect all these from? This is from Chile, and this is from Greece, and this is from Sevilla, and that's from uh, Kenya. The curio cabinet in the living room of Dr. Cohen's apartment in North Toronto is filled with artifacts from a lifetime traveling the world, learning about women's health and teaching it to others. Cohen is in her late 80s and is retired from practice. But that doesn't mean she isn't keeping an eye on the state of gender issues in medicine. Today, women outnumber men in medical school. Not so when May Cohen first started out, which is where our conversation began. Dr. May Cohen, welcome to White Coat Black Art. Thank you. So you graduated at the top of your class in 1955? That's correct. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, At the time, fewer than 7% of medical students were women. And I want to know what it was like for you that first day that you sat down as a fresh-faced medical student in that class. Well, actually, there was a 10% quota, but on the very first day, the dean came in to welcome the class, and he informed us that we would have to wear a tie and shave every day. And all we could do as the few women is look at our own legs. 
So as you were looking at each one another's legs, what were you thinking? Uh, not really. We were happy to be in medical school, to be among the chosen 10%. However, we continued to try to uh, get people to recognize us uh, as uh, physicians. Our anatomy professor always started the class by saying, Good morning, gentlemen. And one day, all of us, the 14 of us, decided to sit in the front row. And he still said, good morning, gentlemen. That was your form of protest? Well, it was a form of protest, but it wasn't too effective. What, what were you thinking about all of that? You know, at that time, we didn't have the kind of awareness that I've developed since and many other people have developed. We just took it for granted. Mind you, uh, the only advantage of being such a small number was that we never had a lineup in the washroom. <sighs> to be honest, I was not conscious of discrimination. As I look back on it now, I realize that. But at 18, 19, 22 years of age, in the 50s, you didn't understand any of that. You were just glad to be there. I was very happy to be there. I really enjoyed medical school. Were there other physicians in your family? Not my immediate family, but the man I eventually married was in my same class. He was in your class? Yes, and he was the silver medalist in the class when I was the gold medalist. So he finished in second place and you were in first? The only time he was in first, I was in second, was the year we got married. <sighs> really? Really. I wouldn't lie to you. <laughs> um, the two of you teamed up to form a family practice, um, and, and you've said that you had to do that. Why? Well, when I graduated from medical school, uh, I was looking at doing a... Sp I did two years as a research fellow in endocrinology, and the question came up about whether I want to continue to specialize in endocrinology. However, that would involve being on call every other night, and at that time, I really wanted to have a child. By that time, I was 27. Most of my friends who were 27 had already had their third child. Uh, Jerry, had Jerry, my husband, had entered general practice, and he was enjoying it, and I made the decision to enter into general practice. Did someone, actually, did someone actually tell you that you couldn't do that? You couldn't specialize and have a child at the same time? Well, nobody told me that, but it was intuitive that it would be very difficult to be on call every other night and be in that position for five years and uh, try to have, be a mother to a child. So, so nobody actually told me that. I mean, there's a lot of hidden intuitive messages that come through about what's appropriate and what you can do and what you can't do. After graduating from medical school at the University of Toronto back in 1955, Cohen and her husband Jerry teamed up as family doctors. She credits that with enabling her to practice medicine and start a family. But she was inspired to do much more, thanks to an issue that was about to explode. The world at six. Good evening. Here are the headlines. History and pandemonium in the House of Commons. Women, some of them chained to gallery seats, scream and chant for free abortions. The, the first decade Cohen worked as a GP, access to abortion in Canada was illegal. Militant women demonstrators who favor free abortions forced a half-hour adjournment of the Commons. Officials said they couldn't recall any similar incident in the history of the Canadian Parliament. It's a woman's right to control her own lives. It's a woman's right 
to control her own body. Every child should be a wanted child, and every mother should be a willing mother. Each of us must have that control. You were a pioneer in advocating for access to legal, safe abortions. Do you remember the first time a woman came to see you asking for an abortion? Yes. I remember several times. I remember one time that a cousin of mine called me because his wife had developed German measles. She wanted to have an abortion. Fortunately, I had enough money that she went to England. And then I had another patient who contacted me about her 16-year-old daughter who was pregnant. And again, she was able to take her to England. The, the most striking thing that struck me was that one of our patients was admitted to emerge, and she was dead as a result of an illegal abortion, which she had had because her first child was only nine months old. And I never forgot that. Seeing her, you know, you walk into emerge and you see her lying there, it was just terribly upsetting. Back then, because I went into practice in 1957, so initially abortion was just illegal. Then in 1969, the law was changed somewhat so that an abortion would be permissible if it could be shown by a committee of three physicians in a hospital that a continuation of the pregnancy would be a risk to her health and life. There are a couple of catches in that. The first one was not every hospital was obliged to have a committee. So, of course, you know, there were a number of hospitals in a number of provinces that didn't have committees. The second thing was that health and life was never actually defined. So depending on the kind of committee, you could either be very liberal in your interpretation or you could be very restrictive. When they first established a committee at the Branson Hospital, which is where I was on staff, I was warned by the chief of staff that the committee would only be allowed to continue to exist if we approve only abortions for women over the age of 45 with hypertension or girls under the age of 12 who have been raped. And I said to him, I guess it's the gray area in between that gives us problems. So what did you do about that? Well, we approved about 12 that year. And they were all women, uh, young women, age 12 and under and and over 45, or did you manage to approve any in the gray zone in between? Oh, we did a few. But it wasn't, I mean, we weren't what was considered a liberal committee by any means. However, when we went to McMaster, we had a committee there, and I was a member there, and we had a totally different idea. And my interpretation was that if someone is forced to carry a pregnancy they don't want, that's a risk to their health. And there were also backroom abortions, weren't there? There still are. There still are, even now. Because the, uh, the access in Canada is not available to everyone. There are a lot of places in which there are no clinic abortions. There are many hospitals which do not permit abortions. There are many rural areas where, where it's not accessible and uh, where they can't afford to travel or the time frame is bad. So access is still uneven, and there is still, I mean, just several weeks ago, several of the MPPs in Ontario spoke to a a so-called pro-life lobby, I hate that term, uh, outside Parliament building. So the risk is always there. 
In the 90s, there was a lot of violence against abortion providers, uh, and Henry Morgenthaler's Toronto Clinic was firebombed. Three Canadian doctors were shot by a sniper. One of them, Dr. Hugh Short, was in Hamilton, where you lived and worked. Um, how did that violence affect you as a pro-choice physician and activist? Well, I wasn't frightened because I wasn't actually providing the service. Nonetheless, it's disgusting. It's very upsetting to think that there are people here who are so uh, fixed in their ideas about what the role of women should be as reproductive producers. It, it, it was very troubling. I mean, the, the struggle never ends. I mean, I'm now retired and I'm older and it's, I'm, I'm less active, but I'm still very much mentally involved. And the political struggle over abortion has flared up again with efforts in some U.S. states to turn back the calendar. Alabama's governor signed the bill into law this evening. The law is also now the strictest anti-abortion legislation in the U.S. It makes abortion a crime at any stage of pregnancy unless the mother's life is at risk or the fetus has what's described as a lethal anomaly. There's no exception for rape or incest. As you know, several states in the U.S. have recently passed laws restricting abortion. Alabama passed legislation banning abortion in almost every circumstance, including incest or sexual assault. What goes through your mind as you see these states trying to systematically dismantle Roe v. Wade and, and uh, access to abortion? Absolute disgust, but also fear. Fear about the spread of the anti-woman movement. So you always have to be on guard to protect what you've gained with a big struggle. You're listening to White Coat Black Art. This week, an extended conversation with Dr. May Cohen, a renowned Canadian physician who rose to the top despite a medical culture steeped in gender discrimination. From the day she entered general practice in 1957, Cohen fought for legal access to abortion, which she saw as a fundamental part of women's health. She joined the Department of Family Medicine at McMaster in Hamilton, and it was there that she took the concept of women's health a giant step forward. I wanted to ask her about that and much more. In 1991, you co-founded the first McMaster Faculty of Medicine Women's Health Office, and this was a first in any Canadian medical school. What was the landscape of women's medicine back then? Well, starting in the late 70s, more and more women came into medicine so that the uh, discriminatory quota against women in medicine fell. However, the issue of women's health was a very different issue. And... Uh, if I can just backtrack for a minute, the reason that provided the impetus for this was that we were on sabbatical in Australia between, in early 1988. And I always had this concept in my mind that Australia was a very macho country. So I was very pleasantly surprised to see that in every state, and we visited 
every state except Tasmania, there was a women's health study going on, a women's health program, including a national one. And I met with these people, and uh, they defined health. They talked about why women's health was a subject of importance, what the problems were around women's health. And I was inspired to come back and try to get organized the people who were interested in women's health to get together. Now, when we talk about women's health, we're not just talking about reproduction or the gynecology, but we're talking about the fact that there are many, many circumstances in which the cause, the prevention, the treatment, the diagnosis, and the prognosis in women are very different. And yet, when I went to medical school, and even much, much later, the medical paradigm was that of the 70-kilogram male, I'm sure you know that, the 70-kilogram male, who was white, of course, and uh, everything in terms of dosage of drugs, in terms of diagnosis and so on, was based on that paradigm. And it was very necessary to begin to define the difference in terms of what affects women's health and what affects uh, men's health. Uh, and of course, how people are socialized, which led me to the concept of gender later on, is very much a factor in their health and well-being. So you came back to Canada following your sabbatical, and uh, you co-founded the McMaster Faculty of Medicine Women's Health Office. How did your male colleagues react to the new office uh, being established? Very interesting. <laughs> Some of them didn't react, I guess, but some did react. We used to, we had a very active program from the Women's Health Office, and we used to run seminars on various topics, and not infrequently there would be stickers on the door of the room with, you know, with some negative comments. Like what? What are you talking about, and so on. Not, not absolute vulgarity, but uh, not support by any means. Uh, so I think that... They, they were also afraid that if we start to focus on women's health, we're going to denigrate men. And that was not the objective at all. More than half of medical school entrants are women. Does that mean gender isn't an issue anymore? What do you mean by gender? Ah, well, uh, men and women, which of course is, is a very binary uh, way of looking at, at the world. Do you see it differently? Well, as you know, society is changing. Men and women uh, are biologically defined by their chromosomes, but their gender may differ in, according to social definition. However, when you ask, do I see if gender difficulties are disappearing? Uh, no, it's not disappearing in terms of men and women being admitted to medical school. Uh, what happens subsequently is different because it's still true that even though men are becoming much more emotionally involved with families and spending more time with families, that women still do the majority of child care, particularly before the kids go to school, and the housework so that uh, the gender issues that affect people when they are uh, in practice are, are different. We did a show last season about, uh, about sexual harassment uh, experienced predominantly by, by female physicians, but not exclusively. What do you make of the reports uh, by particularly young physicians, medical students and residents that they have been harassed, in some cases sexually assaulted by people, by mentors in positions of power? I certainly believe that. 
and I'm not at all surprised at it, because medical school and hospital care is part of society. And in our society, women are harassed and abused and certainly violently attacked. There's lots of violence against women all over. How do you think it can be addressed in medicine? Well, I don't think that the curriculum deals very well with issues like that. It's, you know, the answer is, well, you know, we have so much to put in, we can't put in much more into the curriculum. But again, from a personal experience, I was one of the uh, supervisors during the family medicine exams, and I was called in because one of the candidates had broken down and she was crying. When I went to see her, She explained to me that she had been the victim of a lot of family violence, and the case was a case, a similar case of family violence, and she just broke down. So there was a resident. I mean, medicine is not immune to what goes on in society. What do you think is the biggest fight for women in the medical profession right now? The biggest fight? There's a lot of fights in medicine. One of them is, as you say, to uh, eliminate harassment and abuse. Another fight is uh, the fight that all physicians are facing, which is a failure to value uh, prevention in medicine, to provide sufficient resources to deal with rare diseases. There are a lot of challenges in medicine which face both men and women. But as we spoke just a moment ago about uh, violence, harassment, and abuse, that is a more common problem for women, way more than it is for men. So what role do you think men, uh, male colleagues, should be playing in that fight? They should be standing with those who are opposed to harassment, who are opposed to violence, who are opposed to limitation of reproductive rights, and who are supportive of the progressive changes in medicine, the understanding of prevention, the effect of the determinants of health, and how they can be detrimental. And... and how does the system make it easier for a uh, a woman physician who wants to have a baby and continue in residency or, or become a specialist, for instance? One of the issues that I think that uh, hospitals should address, and I've said this before, is we should have 24-hour daycare for children associated with the hospitals. Because if you're on call and you know that there's 24-hour daycare, that would make a vast difference instead of having to rush out at 5 o'clock to pick up your kid. 24-hour daycare would be expensive. Too bad. There are other things that are very expensive that we don't hesitate to use. Again, that's a question of, are you going to make allowance for the fact that women have the babies? I remember having one resident who kept checking out when I was supervising the team, and her husband was a resident too. And I said, why doesn't he leave sometimes when he has to look after the baby? Oh, he wouldn't do that. So those are some of the things that we could do to make life easier for people, more equitable. It's not just easy, it's more equitable. After spending so much of your career fighting for equality uh, and and progress in a system that's more equitable, how optimistic are you about the state of medicine in Canada today? The state of medicine is good. (laughs) I'm optimistic. Uh, I, I think... Our system is terrific. I'm just hoping that uh, the trial that's going on in Vancouver now with uh, 
the surgeon, the one who's uh, suing against Medicare. Brian Day. Brian, Brian Day, that's right. And would you believe he was once a CMA president? But anyhow, he's got to be defeated. We have to retain our healthcare system. We have to improve on it because there's too many situations in which people are not covered. So you see one of the biggest threats today, uh, the risk of privatization of healthcare. I see that as a very major risk. How do we keep that from happening and maintain a, a vibrant publicly funded system? You have to be prepared to stand up and fight for what you do. That's what I learned and that's what I've done. And I hope I set an example for others to do the same. I'm not, I'm not the only one that does that. There are lots of other people. But more and more, if people care about things, they have to, they have to advocate for them. And what message would you have for a young person entering medical school this fall? That they're very, very lucky to get into medical school and that they are entering a marvelous profession. It's a profession which has a vast choice of uh, directions in which you can go. There are so many things you could do in specialty, in academic medicine. You can make such a difference. I mean, that sounds very trite, but it's true. And so I think anybody who goes to medical school now has to be prepared to work hard, but to realize that it's, it's a wonderful profession. Well, I hope that, uh, that you enjoy yourself in your retirement, and uh, it's been a great pleasure speaking with you. Thank you very much. In 2016, Dr. Cohen was inducted into the Canadian Medical Hall of Fame, and in 2017, she was named an Officer of the Order of Canada. A number of prestigious awards have been named in her honour. That includes the May Cohen Award for Women Mentors. The award, established in 2001 by the Canadian Medical Association, is presented annually to a female physician and CMA member who has acted as an effective leader and role model. Some of Canada's most celebrated women physicians have received the award. Dr. May Cohen has retired, but her contributions and her mentorship have not been forgotten. That's our show for this week. Visit cbc.ca slash whitecoat to see photos of Dr. May Cohen and a link to the documentary, The Gender Lady, the fabulous Dr. May Cohen that inspired this show. And let us know what you thought of the program. Our email address is whitecoat at cbc.ca. I'm on Twitter at NightShiftMD and the show is at CBC Whitecoat. We're also on Facebook. To listen anytime, download the CBC Radio app or the Radio Player Canada app. Subscribe to our show at subscriptions.cbc.ca or wherever you obtain your podcasts. And if you're looking for the latest in health news and analysis, subscribe to Second Opinion at subscriptions.cbc.ca. White Coat Black Art was produced this week by Jeff Goods with help from Sujata Berry and digital producer Ruby Buiza. Our senior producer is Donna Dingwall. Special thanks this week to Dr. Cheryl Levitt at McMaster University. Next week on White Coat, we'll have some updates on shows from the past season, along with some of your letters and emails. That's medicine from my side of the gurney. I'm Brian Goldman. See you next week.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.